This is a special edition of the Flower Confessional. Dan is not here, but I am here with my friend Kamisha, who is one of my dearest, dearest friends. And we have been sitting at the table for, I don't know what, the last hour? And then before that, we were camping at a pho restaurant for about an hour also. Kamisha, tell a little bit about yourself. Tell me about where you were born, how you grew up, what your life was like in your formative years. So I'm from uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and I was adopted at two or one and a half by a Caucasian couple from Minnesota. Um, we lived in Jamaica until I was about four, and then we moved to a suburb right outside of Minneapolis. That's where I was raised. Um, I went to school for um, American History Honors and Black Studies, and I'm very passionate about those issues, but um, I'm a mother of a two-year-old, and that is my, my greatest accomplishment to date. Very cool. Okay, so the things that we talk about a lot are kind of interpersonal relationships. We're both adoptees, mm -hmm. and... We both kind of grew up around the same area. I grew up in South Minneapolis. You grew up in a suburb of South Minneapolis, mm -hmm. really, really close to the city. So what would you say adoption, knowing, growing up knowing that you were adopted, how was that for you personally? I know that obviously, like, I was adopted, but I was adopted by my white father, and I'm white. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously got to be a different experience for you so what was adoption like for you growing up just knowing that you were adopted and having other people know that and and having that be part of your story um well I never had to come to terms with being adopted um we never had to have the talk or um any of the grief that follows finding out that you're adopted I'm black, my parents are white, and so I just always knew. At the same time, growing up in a multiracial family in the 80s in Minnesota was a very unique experience. Specifically, um, I grew up in an affluent part of the, of the suburb or of the suburb of Minneapolis, and that was a very challenging experience emotionally and socially. Minnesota does not have a, an infrastructure of civil rights, nor does it have a, you know, a large representation of a black middle class. Mm -hmm. So to grow up as a black kid with privilege was, a, was, was very unique. Okay. So. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I think a lot of people, white people, I should say, I think a lot of white people from Minnesota, especially from this area of the state, it's very considered very liberal and it's considered more progressive, especially for a Midwestern city. And yet the segregation is very obvious and there's sort of this passive aggressive undercurrent of prejudice and racism mm -hmm. that is ever present but nobody really wants to talk about and I think that a lot of the white people here because they are not outwardly hateful maybe feel that they feel a defensiveness and they feel mm -hmm. sort of a hyper vigilance to defend how progressive and liberal and welcoming and diverse their city is or whatever 
so that being said, and we, we've had obviously a lot of conversations yeah. about that as well, but growing up as a kid and growing up as a girl, all both of those things are, they're just hard on their own. Mm-hmm. And then to be raised by an affluent family without a lot of other kids that had the same story as you. Do you think that that impacts how you develop bonds and relationships with people today? Um, Absolutely. Um, I definitely had an identity crisis. Um, Culturally, I was biracial, but uh, genetically, I'm black. And I didn't... Well, okay, there's... um, Minnesota is known to have a large percentage of biracial children. It's kind of a Midwest phenomenon. And I had the biracial background, but I didn't, I wasn't genetically biracial. Mm -hmm. So I was outside of that expectation or that standard. There was no excuse for why I spoke the way I spoke. There was no excuse for why I liked quote white things, quote, white music, things like mm-hmm. that. And so I felt this this internal dilemma and struggle to never, I never felt black enough. I definitely wasn't white, so I'm never going to ever feel white enough, but yet I culturally and socially identified with whiteness mm-hmm. to the point where it took a long time to even feel comfortable or proud of being a black person. You know, one thing I remember is I... I it, it's been very recently, I think it's like a phenomenon of like, you know, the 21st century to appreciate a woman's body with curves. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been pretty standard in the black community, the Latino community, to appreciate a woman who is not a waif. Um, but in the early 90s, we had the Calista Flockharts, the Courtney Cox. The heroin chic. The heroin chic, exactly. Yeah. And I did not fit that. And it, it was it was very traumatic and difficult for me because um, I just wanted to look like all the other girls. And it wasn't until Jennifer uh, Lopez became really popular in about, you know, 2000, 2001, that that body type went mainstream. And by mm-hmm. mainstream, I mean it was acceptable by the white, white population. People. Yeah, yeah. Like by white people even though there are a lot of black women who are built like that and white women who are built like that, whatever, it was acceptable and promoted in black and Latino communities. But Jennifer Lopez was light-skinned. Okay. So she was white enough to be sexy. Mm-hmm. And then she changed the, the standard of, of, of beauty. And I finally felt proud of my shape and the way I look, no matter how much we talk to girls or with girls about being proud of, you know, like their personality and it's what's on the inside. Mm-hmm. There's peer pressure. Right. It's real. And women are very preoccupied with, with their looks. It's just, it's just the reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. This is essentially a personal growth podcast. We talk about spirituality. We talk about certain you know, kind of socio-political things. And this kind of was an impromptu thing, but this is really cool because 
Dan and I are both white and we are both obviously as people who want to be loving and want to be better than what we were indoctrinated to believe and and trying to deliberately like examine biases and 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 try to relearn how to do things the right way in a structure that serves us are there things that you always wish that you were able to say and articulate to the people that you grew up around to white people to white people <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah like is there something that was always like i wish that you knew this um or wish that you would do this and yeah not number one would be like shut up yeah <laughs> just just you know take a humility pill and just listen yeah and I draw a lot of parallels between the Me Too movement, um, feminism, even though I'm not a feminist, but feminism, um, sexism, things that are affecting women. Um, Mm -hmm. And I draw parallels to help explain a white person's role in race conversations. Mm -hmm. Men don't get to decide what's sexist. Mm -hmm. Women hold that. Like, we decide, mm-hmm. we say what what is. We define our reality. White people, you don't get to, dis- you don't get to say what's racist and what isn't. Mm-hmm. That's, that's up to black people. And yeah. you just have to listen because you don't get it, unfortunately or fortunately. I guess really fortunately, you don't have to, to get it. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to get it. We are all socialized within a white supremacist patriarchal society. Mm -hmm. There are inherent biases that we all learn. White people learn racism. Black people learn Mm self-hate. It's just what it is. And it's just the process of unlearning it. But the only way to unlearn something is to have humility and accept being taught. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So... So you and I went to New York. Do you mind like sharing this story? Because I feel the reason that I I ask is because I think this is such a good example that I think a white person might not, if they overheard that conversation or if they overheard this, maybe they wouldn't think, maybe they wouldn't think as critically about it. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they've even had that type of conversation themselves and they don't understand why that would be such a such an issue so do you want to share it you don't have to go ahead and I'll comment in so you can okay give the background okay okay so we were at a cafe in New York and Kamisha and I were having lunch and there was a white woman from Boston a couple tables away she had a couple drinks she was kind of getting loud (laughs) and she was talking about how she was from Boston and her dressmaker was from New York and so she had to fly into New York all the time for all these fittings and so obviously she was clearly illustrating that she was a woman of wealth a white woman of wealth and of privilege and then she started talking about politics and started clearly identifying with being like a white liberal like a democrat white feminist white liberal yeah, yeah. white feminist white white liberal and you kind of like, you know, rolled your eyes immediately. And I was like, yeah, okay. You know? And then a few minutes later, she said that she wanted to sing gospel at her wedding. Well, originally she wanted, okay. So taking a 
two or three steps back. They're millennials. We want to be different. We want to be unique. We want the newest, latest, and greatest. And so a lot of that in terms of planning your wedding is creating a wedding experience that's unique to you, unique to the couple, Mm -hmm. and also something different. doesn't feel cookie cutter. So originally she was talking about having gospel singers as like the music for her ceremony, like using gospel for for her ceremony. Mm -hmm. And I just was kind of like, ah, here we go. (laughs) And go on. Yeah. So didn't she, so she was going to have gospel singers originally. And then she was like, well, why don't I just sing gospel? Yeah. I think something, something like that. Yeah. So if I recall correctly, they were getting up to leave. They were getting up to leave eventually, and you called her over and you said, Hey, excuse me, like, can I come over and talk mm-hmm. to you for a second? And you said, You know, I, I heard that you're engaged, congratulations. Um, and then you said, I overheard that you said that you would like to have gospel at your wedding. Because so, it's unique. Because it's unique. Or she said, like, because it's different mm-hmm. or something like that. I think you said, you asked if she was mixed. Mm-hmm. Just and, the reason why I asked that is, this is something that kind of goes into the whole Rachel Dolezal situation too. Um, there is a real disturbing history of blackness in, in America. And it's that the a lot of the color differentiation among black people is due to rape. Mm-hmm. And so there is a lot of white or European lineage in black Americans. Um, and I have two nephews who are, you know, part black and straight blonde hair, blue eyes. So I never come in with the assumption that a person with light skin, light eyes and straight hair is actually Caucasian. So right. I wanted to clarify and find out if she actually was right. Cauc- like, you know, not black. Right. And she said no. No. <laughs> and then you asked if her fiance yeah. was was, was mixed or mixed or black, black or something like and that. And she said no. Mm-hmm. I think she said he's Italian. Yeah. <laughs> and then I asked if she was from the South or if she, you know, like went to a black church or just right. Just like any to, any yeah. any benefit of the doubt. Exactly. And she she said no. Mm-hmm. And so you began to explain that it was inappropriate. Yeah. And um, that it was disrespectful. Yeah. And so what ensued was I mean her immediate response was well because I'm because I'm white so because because I'm white I can't use gospel yeah that's what she said because I'm white I can't use gospel at my wedding and I said well no it's not that simplistic um what it is is that you're wanting to use gospel as a shock factor Mm -hmm. um so you're almost commodifying black spiritual music to Mm -hmm. make a statement yeah that you are different. Right. It's a novelty. It's exactly. not. Yeah. You're not honoring it for what it is and where it comes from, which is the history of oppression, struggle, and uh, slavery. Mm-hmm. So in that case, it's highly inappropriate. Um, you have no connection to the black church, no connection to blackness. Mm-hmm. So it's literally being used to be like, oh, that that's. I think that's cute, girl. It's it's cute. I want it. Like, I mm-hmm. want to wear a kimono because I think it's cute. Right. No, there is some respect that goes with that. Right. And then you can talk about, you know, the... 
Yeah. Not speaking up. Yeah. So. Yeah. So from from my perspective, you mean? Yeah. Kind of what she was saying about what I had said about. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I, I thought you meant because because being there again, I didn't want to I didn't want to take away from what you were trying to say. And I didn't want to speak over you or speak for you. Mm-hmm. But I just kind of gave you the like, okay, I got your back. Like whatever you decide to do. And whatever you decide to say, like, you know, all I, all I can do is listen and support. Mm-hmm. But you asked a really good question that I think even I didn't consider in that moment. And you asked her, are you going to have black guests at your wedding? And she said, yes. And you mm-hmm. said, well, they might not say that this bothers them or offends them, but I'm telling you that it's going to. Mm-hmm. And that it may. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that was that was really powerful because she was very she was obviously being somewhat careful with her words, but she was being very defensive and insistent and really kind of trying to convince you that Like why it's okay that she has this was okay or she was trying to argue that point with you and that was sort of the moment that she didn't really have any she she really didn't have any rebuttal for that. All all she could do at that point was either apologize and do the mature thing or do what she did end up doing, which was she said, I'll take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. And then she asked your name and gave you her name. And then at the end she said, it's German. I don't know why she said that. I don't know either. I think it was maybe an attempt to, I have no, I have no idea. It's German. I could be bringing too much into it, but the way I took it was that, oh, in case you don't, in case you haven't traveled, or in case you aren't worldly, let me, let me let you know that my name is, is from Germany. Right. It's, it's, I'm an exotic European. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then she left and I kind of, we kind of looked at each other and I was like, I guarantee you she's going to be on Facebook in like five minutes being like this angry black lady. Mm-hmm you know, criticized me and said, I can't have this thing that I want and that it's racist and like how that's super unfair and everything. And, and that was, it was, it was so shitty. And, but it, at the same time, it was an experience and a story that taking that away, I can pretty much explain that and relay that story to any white person. I shouldn't say any white person, but a lot of white people and a lot of white people that think they're really tolerant Mm -hmm. And, and they're like, oh, like, okay, I get it. Like, I didn't get it before, but now I get it mm-hmm. in, insofar as I can. But that's something that, those are the types of conversations that white people have amongst themselves all the time. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay, great. Mm-hmm. Like, I did makeup for a wedding, and it was a white bride, and the entire bridal party was white. And she was drinking out of a cup that said, we sip champagne when we thirsty. <laughs> And I was like, you know, I was there and I was like, okay, like I get the reference and I'm just kind of like, okay, but that song was definitely not about a bunch of like white ladies from the suburbs sitting around getting their hair and makeup done before a big fancy wedding. And it's on a coffee cup and it's like, Ooh, isn't that edgy and cute? It's hip hop. Like, Oh, isn't that a cute juxtaposition Mm -hmm. of culture? And like, look at how funny this is it's sort of like this sort of like funny caricaturization of like 
oh, this little white lady knows a hip-hop song. And then you see that a lot on T-shirts of, like, the, like, you know... Little kitschy phrase. Listen to some gangster rap and handle it, and it's like a tank top. Yeah. Or something. So... The the commodification of blackness, the commodification of black culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And then... Loving black culture, hating black people. Yeah. You know, that is, you know, that combined with when black people say, do, say, or do it, invent it, create whatever, it's ghetto, or it's ugly, or it's dirty, or it's violent, or it's this, but when somebody else, a white person does it, or an acceptable POC does it, then it's now socially acceptable. A perfect example is, Bruno Mars and Two Chains. I think mm-hmm. it was Two Chains who, who who did it. Like, you know, don't believe me, just watch. Mm-hmm. You know that. And then Bruno Mars took it and said, you know, made it into song. You know, don't believe me, just watch. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And now it was like, oh, that can be played at the Super Bowl. That's acceptable. Yeah. But then he comes out in a gold chain, and obviously in what would be considered hip hop garb. Mm-hmm. But because he's not a dangerous, dark-skinned black man, it can be aired at 7 o'clock on the halftime show. Yeah. It's homogenized. Mm-hmm. It's safe. It's packaged to be safe for mm-hmm. white people to consume. Yeah. That makes sense. So Yes, girl. Nice, light topic of conversations. <laughs> so, but, no, this is really nice. And this is super impromptu and, and cool to talk about. So, uh, so you and I have known each other for, God, like, seven years at least mm-hmm. and 2010 2011 yeah, yeah 2011 because so eight years yeah well my son was in a car seat he was born in a he was born in 2011 and he was what a, maybe a few months old he was new yeah i don't even remember how little he was i just remember schlepping him in a car seat <laughs> and i really didn't expect i think you know you cross paths with people in life that you meet them and you're like, oh, okay, like they seem cool, but you don't really realize the connection or the commonalities that you have until much later. And you don't really expect to develop a close bond with them. You just don't go in with that expectation. And it kind of happened organically mm-hmm. with us. So you were modeling. So I did your makeup. Mm-hmm. And God, back then, I just feel like I sucked so bad as a makeup artist. <laughs> But the, it was amazing. It was so avant-garde. It was, it was, so yeah. it was some really cool work. I remember putting these really, really long, like fluttery blue eyelashes on you. Like electric blue. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a super fun day. But I was, yeah, so I was a makeup artist. You were a model and those two things are still true. And <laughs> things have just, we're grown-ups, like grown, grown-up women yeah, now yeah. we're moms and we're in our 30s mid 30s mid 30s oh geez oh geez and yeah so we do this thing that and we started <laughs> doing segue. yeah we started doing this in new york i'm so glad like this could have been the entire fucking episode to be <laughs> honest with you but so we're from the midwest but obviously we've both traveled a lot because of our lives and we were neither of us were born in Minnesota and so we have this sort of weird relationship with it and we have these observations that maybe people who have never left here or have always lived here might not notice 
or might not know us to the degree with which we do it. So we were in New York. We stayed in Midtown and we were so fucking obnoxious <laughs> because we started acting like Midwestern church ladies. Suburban church ladies. Sub- suburban church ladies. Literally everywhere we went, we we named ourselves Barb and Deb. And I sometimes I forget who I am. Am I Barb? I mean, just Barb, I mean, just whatever you're feeling for the day. Just, just you know what? Own you, boo. Own <laughs> you. You live, live your truth. Hashtag <laughs> live your truth. So, so we we started talking like this. Just I think to make each other laugh, but also we were being. I think the Uber driver was kind of like, who, what is this? <laughs> and so we got a weird reaction. So we kept doing it and we, we'd like get an Uber and we would talk like that and we would see if the- I've been dead, take me and Patton. <laughs> Watch out world. <laughs> oh geez. Yeah. And we were just trying to make each other laugh. Like we were, we were in Times Square and we were like, oh geez, we should really hit up a nice restaurant, you know, like the Olive Garden or something. <laughs> They have an olive garden right there in Times Square. I, I love their soup salad and breadsticks. <laughs> I want some authentic Italian because I'm in the big city. Mm-hmm. And not too much space, though. Not too much space. Just noodles and ketchup for me. <laughs> Fuck. Um, you can sour cream. <laughs> um, so we we kept we we started doing that because it was funny, and we kept doing it. And then it sort of became this satirical commentary on like sheltered white ladies mm-hmm. that are sort of trying, they're trying their best to be hashtag woke. woke. Hashtag woke. Conscious. <laughs> white privilege. <laughs> but they 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 really just they're they're quite clueless and they don't have any malicious intent, but they're 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 just just sweet as apple pie. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so we have made each other laugh so hard we've almost peed. And we were almost. we were <laughs> I had about six kids, so what you can say, I mean let's keep it real. <laughs> oh my god. Sometimes so the yeah. one just uh, sneaks out, but that it's okay. Is, that is what panty liners are for, you know. Gosh, yeah, you know, geez. Okay. That's okay, you know. Everybody has an accident once in a while. Yeah, just you know who don't laugh or sneeze too hard. <laughs> Don't squat down to pick something off the floor, you know. Do a nice bend. Keeps it safe. Bend and snap. And you'll be saying, uh, what's the one with that cute little girl from down south? Le- legally blonde. Legally blonde, yeah. the, that, Reese, that Reese Witherspoon. Oh, she's just a peach. Yeah, so we <laughs> we have talked several times about having a podcast called Barb and Deb Take the 21st Century. And we were talking today about because this accent will come out when we're talking to each other now it's almost involuntary we're at a Vietnamese restaurant today and it was just coming out and there was a table next to us that were like kind of staring at us a little bit like Like, what the fuck and is this are they for real and then we're like okay okay we have to stop we have to stop and we'd say two sentences in our real voices and then we would switch back into it because it's just it's so easy, and it just, it feels so good, you know? It just, it just feels so wholesome. I just feel like I'm letting my hair down, you know? I'm just letting my Ogilvy home perm just Long fly. Long I don't care. Right? You know, just let that freak flag fly. Jeez. Gosh, that's hard to say. Um, 
put that next to the American flag in the front yard. <laughs> but I just feel like we get into it so much that we get very satirical and I just don't, I don't know if anybody would get it except for us. I think they'd just be, I think maybe they would think that we were uh, being serious and they, and people would get really pissed off. But also that's sort of the humor of satire mm-hmm. is watching people get really, really uncomfortable. So. Kind of walking that, that line. And I mean, in fact, it's funny that we chose Barb and Deb because I do these same voices with some girls at work and we are Barb and Connie. So, <laughs> oh geez, there's, there's Barb, there's Deb, there's Connie and Darcy, and I just, you know, I just, why don't we have uh, Connie and Darcy on for a little guest appearance? Oh my gosh, that'd be so great. Well, we were talking with Jordan yesterday, and he was saying, <laughs> well, why don't, on Barb and Deb's podcast, why don't you have residents from their their town come and be their guests? And I thought that that would be really fun, too. So, we might actually end up doing that. But in the midst of all of this, we have these really, really nice conversations about relationships and about our experiences and the things, sort of, I guess, the attachment styles and the coping and the struggles and the the things that we experience as a result of just our upbringing and our our traumas and wounds and those kinds of things. And I talk a lot on the podcast about interpersonal relationships, specifically romantic relationships. And it really is with you that I feel, I feel that all of my shitty life experience is somehow useful. (laughs) And I also feel like there's an understanding between us that's really, really cool. It's authentic. Yeah. Not judgy or it's just, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like those types of friendships are important. There's such a, it's such a hard line to toe between calling somebody out on their shit in a loving way and pushing somebody away because maybe you, maybe you see something that they're not ready to see yet or that they're not willing to see yet. And we definitely have, I feel like always been able to strike that balance so do you feel do you feel comfy talking about like certain experiences that you've had so if there's anything that you don't want to talk about I can totally cut it out but would you mind talking about abusive controlling relationships or talking about just bad experiences in general kind of how they shape the way that people love and the way that people interact with each other. Yeah, I mean, I have a history of abusive relationships, um, whether that be physical, sexual, or emotional um, abuse. I think that, I don't know if I want to label it the scariest, but I think in my experience, the most traumatic for me has been the emotional abuse because it's something that, is very um, internal mm-hmm. and doesn't show bruises. You can't go to the hospital and you know get like a rape kit to prove. Like there's, it's something that is all in your mind and in your heart. Mm-hmm. And the, it's the most invisible and the most pervasive way to hurt somebody. Yeah, 
at least in my experience, because yeah. I don't want to say that someone's sexual abuse has not been as yeah. traumatic. So it's, yeah, that's that's true. Good yeah, good point. <laughs> for me, emotional abuse has been um, the most traumatic. You know, I think women are taught, and then you know, and modern Americans are taught, you know, go with your gut, trust your intuition; it won't lead you astray. And one of the psychological residuals of emotional abuse is not being able to trust your gut, Mm -hmm. not trusting your intuition. And yesterday you had a really good analogy or illustration of what that looks like and feels like. So imagine you have Christmas lights. Mm -hmm. You have, they're on, they're all entangled. When you lose touch with your intuition you have a trauma strand and you have an intuition strand and they're completely tangled. Mm -hmm. So when you are facing a dilemma, a problem, a situation and a nerve is struck. Yeah. Yeah. Within you. um, It's really scary and unsettling to not know if that nerve is your trauma nerve of that nerve is your intuition. Yeah. And you really just don't know. Yep. Yeah, totally. And I think to elaborate further on that, I describe it a lot as my brain and my heart are fighting each other. Mm -hmm. I feel like my heart is tied into truth and what I know, like what I know that I know that I know. Mm -hmm. And I think of the brain as an organ that is meant to process logic, but it's also meant to detect danger. Mm -hmm. I feel like the brain is, I feel like its only job is to help us stay alive. And our heart is really to help us feel and live. I think it's tied to emotion and we downplay emotion in favor of logic a lot. Well, if we have such an emphasis on logic and thinking critically and our brain is telling us we're in danger, then we're perpetually depriving ourselves of joy or we are kind of squelching the part of our heart that says this doesn't feel right. Like it doesn't feel right, but the logical part says this is. So it really does. Any type of abuse takes your reality and twists it and distorts it so you don't know if you can trust yourself mm-hmm. or if you have to go to an outside source to to validate. F- to validate and find out what the truth is and that's that's really the biggest struggle i think of anybody who's been a survivor of abuse regardless of the type of abuse because physical wounds do heal but the damage that it does to the way that you see the world is also real. Is also real, and it's it's long, like a lot longer lasting than the actual injuries themselves. And even when you don't remember specific incidents, your body remembers or your brain remembers, and every experience that you have after that is shaped by that. So we have a lot of conversations of given our history and given what we've experienced, we want to love and how do we love? So 
it's really nice to have our friendship because we do bounce stuff off of each other a lot and we trust that we want the other person to live the fullest yeah most successful life and and have what they want and need and deserve so I might have a skewed perception of something because of what I've been through and while you can identify with that you can also detach your emotion from it because you don't have the same trauma that I have and you can speak to me in a way that relates to me mm-hmm. and validates what I say but also kind of calm my fears or give me reassurance that if I'm feeling something that doesn't feel right that I can trust that mm-hmm. so and likewise yeah yeah so that's that's very cool I think for me I am I've said this before but if somebody kind of comes at me in an aggressive way I'm very aggressive back I'm a really assertive person and I watch a lot of people who aren't like that I watch them kind of shrink and it really frustrates me because I'm like you just get out there and like stand up for yourself and like go you tell them this or that and they're like oh well but I just and it took it took me forever to be like hey not everybody can confront someone and not everybody can get in someone's face not everybody has the reaction time that you have, and a lot of times making yourself smaller keeps you safe or makes you believe that you are safe. And sometimes I get really aggressive and assertive. We had a few glasses of wine last night, and I got, like, loud, and I got, like, in your face. <laughs> Do you remember, like, I said a couple things, and you were like, whoa. <laughs> like, I'm going to write that in my notes app, because that was really savage. It was. <laughs> savage. It, you know, hashtag savage cheese. <laughs> but that is something that I'm able to do when I can see that somebody has sinister intentions. Like, when they're being kind of an asshole, I'll be like, oh, I've got your number. You do this because of this. This is who you are, and this is what you're trying to hide about yourself, and this is how you look at me, and this is how you're trying to, like, fuck with me and like fuck you it's like I read their mail right in front of them and nobody likes being called out on their bullshit so they're like fuck you bitch and I'm like okay yeah you don't have any rebuttal like suck my dick (laughs) but when somebody is nice to me especially when they like look me in the eye or when I feel like they're extending effort to me like because that's the thing it's like if I don't like somebody I'm not nice to that like I'll be polite or mm-hmm. nice or whatever cordial but I don't go out of my way to be nice to people that I don't have an emotional investment in or that I don't like mm-hmm. and so it's really hard for me to understand why somebody would put that much effort in and so I'm really I'm discovering at almost 36 years old I'm like holy shit I'm painfully naive like I always prided myself on like oh like I grew up in South Minneapolis and like oh I had this really rough life and so I'm super tough and super streetwise and I'm like you know I like nobody can fuck with me and it's like yeah dude like you just want to be loved like everybody else and you are vulnerable to the promise of love and affection and validation like you can see when someone's a dick and you can tear them apart and you're not afraid of them but you're very afraid of real love and you're very gullible. Mm -hmm. That is a direct result of abuse. Like I just don't, I don't have it in me to lie to somebody and be affectionate to them as a means to get what I want. 
So I don't understand how anybody else could do that either. Mm-hmm. So when when someone's nice to me, I assume that they have good motives. Mm-hmm. And when someone's mean, I assume that they're trying to be hurtful. And I'm pretty quick to call that shit. Call that shit. Mm-hmm. So what is that like for you? Like I know that we were having a conversation earlier today and I think a lot of like I think a lot of your pattern is like you want to be reassured that you are safe. Exactly. So just talk about that. Tell us yeah. about that. You know, just just a nice light topic of conversation. Oh jeez. Jeez. I, I why don't you ask me questions? Yes. I, I don't even know where to begin without rambling. So. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. Like my whole life is rambling. <laughs> well, that's why uh, I was so. That's why I was so happy to turn the mic on. I was like, God, somebody else can fucking talk for a while. <laughs> when Dan and I do this podcast, like it's just him being like, mm-hmm, <laughs> sure, <laughs> yep. <laughs> and I'm like, thank you, Dan. All right, you can follow Dan on Instagram at Dan Nothi. And I'm like, thanks so much, Dan. You're the best. And it's like I'm. I edit it, and I'm like, holy shit. I, he talked for two minutes. <laughs> I just spit all over myself. Oh, um, girl, well, no one can see you. Don't worry. Just wipe. Just, just wipe your mouth. Just use that one of those baby wipes. That, that, that's what uh, Mama taught me. You just wipe your just, mouth. You can just. <laughs> just wipe your ass. Just, uh, you know what? Ladies dab, whores wipe. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm. Is that what they taught you at church last Sunday? Because <laughs> I've never heard that. I'm gonna. I'm so. God, we're so wow. ridiculous. You know, Jeez. modesty is hottesty. Just the things you learn. Praise the Lord. The more you know. Praise Jesus. Praise, praise him. Um, okay, so, uh, oh, gosh, what what am I going to ask you? Because there's just like, like where so, do you start? That's there's so many, yeah, like where do you fucking start? Okay, so we were talking, we were talking earlier tonight, and we've talked about this before. So the nature of abuse is so pervasive and with our society, which is so litigious and has somehow over time come to serve, seemingly serve abusers more than victims, Mm -hmm. especially, gosh, I mean, in, in so, in so many different scenarios But I was talking about how when I was 18, this was, this was really my first experience ever with something like this. But my boyfriend, when I was 18, dragged me out onto the sidewalk and he slammed my head against the the pavement and he had me pinned by my wrists and I dug my fingernails into his hands. And then when he kind of came loose, I bent one of his thumbs back and I smacked him in the face to kind of stun him and I ran and I called the police and I had never really been in a situation like that myself but I remember when I was a little kid my dad had hurt my mom and she called the police and they arrested my dad and they went to court they whatever I I don't know the exact details of what happened I, I was there but it seemed like my dad hit my mom my mom called the police. The police believed her. My dad got arrested. And it seemed very clear. Mm-hmm. Very linear. Right. And then here I was at 18. 
and I was this very small person. He was this very large man. I was able to get away and I ran and called the police for help. And when they showed up, they spoke to him first and he kind of crazy made and gaslit me. And then they had already had this bias that because he was a man and because he was more calm that he must be telling the truth. And then they went and talked to me and I explained what happened. And they said, well, if anybody's going to jail, it's you because he has more injuries than you do. And that really flabbergasted me. And now this many years later, I've heard countless stories like that. I've heard of women getting assault charges mm -hmm. and being convicted of assault because they fought back against yeah. their abuser and because their abuser had an injury. Mm -hmm. So speaking up seems to have a danger, like defending, you're always taught to defend yourself, but, but just, just, not, just don't show any marks if you defend yourself. Right. And so or don't leave a mark. Right. It's like, get away however you can and fight back, but not like that. Mm -hmm. And if you do it like that, if you happen to injure someone while they're trying to injure you out of self-defense, you could go to jail and you could have consequences to not allowing someone to really, really hurt you. Or, or tr I shouldn't say not allowing, but trying your best to keep them from hurting you. So even if you call the police or whatever. So that having happened again later down the road, like that, that time was like very cut and dry for me. I was like, oh, well, fuck the cops. And I know what happened. I know what he did to me. I know it was wrong. That was a fucked up situation. It must have been a one-off. Mm -hmm. And then I just like kept hearing those stories over and over again. And I think when you have a dynamic where you have a woman saying, yeah, I went to jail. I didn't go to jail, by the way, but I went to jail because somebody was hitting me mm -hmm. and I hit them back. Mm -hmm. I think there's automatically like a, really? Did that really happen? Or are you a crazy bitch mm -hmm. sort of thing and we're starting to get a little bit more aware of it mm -hmm. but that seems to happen way more frequently than we are told mm -hmm. but there's always somebody that knows somebody that has that story mm -hmm. and that really the emotional and psychological abuse that happens when a victim is being groomed to eventually be physically hurt mm -hmm. has already planted this seed of self-doubt and questioning themselves questioning their gut instinct and and really growing trauma inside of them so then once the physical does actually happen there's a less likelihood of believing that what happened wasn't deserved and was as bad as it seemed at the time. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like your story supports that? Aligns with that, yeah. Yes. Um not going into too much detail. I was in an abusive relationship when I was uh 20, 21, 22, and I never experienced anything like that before a physically abusive relationship. And I asked my partner's mom, you know, what should I do? And my partner's mom obviously said, well, you know, attack back, fight back. 
obviously not the best advice, but I didn't know any better. And yeah. so I did. I had, you know, longer nails and I, when I was being physically threatened and um, abused at this one time, um, I used my shoulder and kind of like pushed into my partner. My partner hauled off and, you know, punched me in the head and left mm-hmm. a punched me all over my, my arms, um, mm. and, you know, I called the cops. The cops came, they looked at my partner, uh, and my partner had uh, nail scratches, and so I was wearing a backup at the time, and I didn't think to, like, you know, show my, my body, mm-hmm. uh, because I was visibly without injury, I was the one who was arrested. So we went down, and at this point, I had to change into, like, the orange suit, whatever. Okay. And I had bruises all up in my arms. Um, fresh bruises, old bruises, and at that point, everything was pretty much, like, dropped. Um, and yeah. And it was, it was very obvious that the nail marks were, on my partner, were defensive wounds. Right. And trying to get away. Right. So, yeah, if you don't know how to work the system... Um, as a victim, you can be taken advantage of, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the assumption was made, even though you called the police for help, that because there were these defensive scratches. wounds, scratches, they didn't look at them and go, oh, those are defensive wounds. Mm-hmm. They didn't look at size differential. They didn't look at anything. It was a... The history of, of, the, of the cause. Right. Yeah. yeah. It was this person's word versus that person's mm-hmm. word, and... In 30 seconds, we're summing up that we see this person has injuries and we can't see them on this other person. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't until you were, like, put in a cop car and, like, what, handcuffed and arrested and brought... Brought down and... Brought down and then it... Probably. Yeah, and then it was like, okay, change your clothes. And it was like, oh, wait, never mind. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like that. So, uh, I mean, that's that's obviously obviously a horrible situation. But at the same time, it's like those those injuries were present and visible, so they were validated. Mm-hmm. Whereas if somebody was in a similar altercation and maybe didn't have visible... The bruises that time. Yeah, didn't have the bruises that time, mm-hmm. that the situation could have ended. Very differently. Very differently. Mm-hmm. It's to, to totally segue here. So in the time that we recorded, a dog has been barking, a car has been warmed up, cats have been meowing... A car alarm went off. It has been the loudest podcast ever. And now my cats are fighting. <laughs> They're fighting like two feet away. But so obviously if you hear if you hear noise, we apologize. Isn't really understood or acknowledged that those types of things happen. And so we do hear a lot of questions like, well, why didn't you call the police? And it's it very very well be could be. Like, oh, well, last time I called the police, they didn't believe me. Or there wasn't, do anything. there wasn't enough of an injury or there wasn't this or that. So there is, obviously, I mean, we could, we could talk for an hour about victim blaming and about how pervasive that is and, and how we just are not where we need to be in, in regard to validating victims. But through just these couple of examples, it's hopefully easier to see, A, why people don't always report things, why that could mess up your 
perception of reality. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you are like, I'm being hurt and here's a system put in place to help me and that system is telling me I did something wrong and my partner who I love is telling me I did something wrong, well, the common denominator here that mm-hmm. is in opposition to that is me. Mm-hmm. So we don't really talk about how that stays with you. That part stays with you and our a lot of our systems are structured to support that. Mm-hmm. Like the evangelical church in a lot of ways really grooms women, you know, be submissive and be the helper and we're married for life and don't leave your husband and don't quit and don't give up on him and you need him and he's the leader and this kind of stuff. And not just evangelical Christianity, but a lot of religions do mm-hmm. that. Is you can't get by without your man and if you leave him then you're a quitter and you're not really loving him and you're not really devoted to him and it's your job to serve him and surrender and do what he wants to do and that kind of stuff. We've got religious structures like that. We have government structures like that. And then we have societal structures like that. When people speak up, it's, we're always questioning the validity of what they do, even though there just isn't data to support that that many people are lying, Mm -hmm. but there's an enormous amount of data to support that our systems are failing victims Mm -hmm. and that even when perpetrators are acknowledged and their victims are validated, they rarely have much of a consequence, especially in regard to sexual abuse and rape. So moving forward from that and having a normal, healthy relationship with somebody who is good to you, even if everything seems great, your brain is still like, okay, well, this person seems great. So talking about those Christmas lights again, is it my instinct that's afraid to love this person or is it my trauma? Mm -hmm. And like, this feels like my gut, but is it my gut or is it my trauma? So it's crazy making without using, I I don't like that term, um, you know, that label when it's applied to women, but it makes the individual feel very yeah. Well, once it's like the it's like the perpetrator's gone, but they're still there. It's yeah. like you begin to perpetrate mm-hmm. that, and they no don't. No longer you the abuser. They, you abuse yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then to look at that from an individual perspective, and then the, to look at things societally, it's really easy to see how people can be self-hating and how people can perpetuate something and not realize that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. It is. In a lot of ways, hard to have friendships with other people who've been through similar things as you. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there are a lot of people who, even beyond the Stockholm Syndrome, like you can see Stockholm Syndrome a mile away. Like when someone's making excuses for somebody that hurts them, Mm -hmm. it's like, for me, it's like, that's plain as day. Mm -hmm. It's not plain as day for them, Mm -hmm. but it's really easy to spot. But what's harder to spot is when someone leaves and they haven't done the work to heal. A lot of like victims slash survivors, however you want to label it, they they congregate and then they sort of create this like hierarchy where there's a system of abuse within the community of survivors mm-hmm. where if certain people haven't done their healing work, they will use another victim who's kind of worse off than them to take them under their wing and make them feel like useful and helpful and then when that person kind of starts to get better they 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 kind of turn on 
they kind of turn on each other. It's like we're it's like we're groomed to almost be competitive or be in fight with each other. And I think that happens with lots of oppressed and marginalized groups mm-hmm. of people is like, okay, well I can't I can't defeat the real enemy, mm-hmm. but I can pick on you. Yeah. And you're gonna take it because you want me to like you. Yeah. And I wanna prove to you that I'm on your side. Mm-hmm. So like it's almost it's almost like it's one of those it's one of those groups of people that's like blood in a shark tank. Mm-hmm. So when you and I really started getting close, it became really obvious to me that you and I are both really super committed to getting well and that we trust each other and that we're vulnerable and honest with each other, um, but also that our bond is not based purely on trauma. No. We're, I'm not friends with you because I'm like, oh, yeah, no, she's totally been through the same, like, terrible shit that I've been through. Like, we really like being around each other. Yeah. And, and that's, like, not even how our relationship started. It started from a space right. of creativity and our individual talents. So yeah, it just came out over time. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. I think if there was anything that I would say is the greatest, not the greatest, but one of the greatest ways to like heal and overcome a lot of that stuff is to find somebody with whom you trust that you can talk to about anything, but also somebody that you genuinely like as a person and like removing trauma and removing wounds from the equation. Like, do you guys actually like each other and get along? Would you hang out with each other without all the rest of that stuff? And so I found that in you and I, I just really appreciate that. And I'm so happy that you like, let me record this conversation. This is super cool. I am going to wrap it up here, but is there anything that you can think of that you want to add before I finish up? No, I is there, is there anything you want to bump? Anything you want to promote? No. <laughs> no, that's not true. All right. Okay, cool. Well, um, thank you so much for listening. You can follow The Flower Confessional on Instagram at the flower confessional, all one word. You can follow me at Angela Morris Makeup. That is also all one word. And you can follow my co-host Dan at Dan Nothe. That's D-A-N-N-O-E-T-H-E. And subscribe to us for updates. And we will see you next week. Thank you for listening.